Well, come on, church, who's glad to be in the house of the Lord right now? Can we put our hands together and be a little bit excited? I want to greet everyone at every location in Binghamton, in Ithaca, everyone that's online in Ithaca. I'm still paying attention to y'all. I love you guys. And then in Cortland and Corning, man, I'm so, so stoked to be able to be with you. My name is Will. I'm the lead pastor at Two Rivers Church, and I want you to know this. I love you. I've been praying for you. We are in the middle of 21 days of prayer. And if you haven't been able to participate in that, jump in tomorrow at 7 a.m. You can find the link to join us online or go in person at every one of our locations. Prayer changes things. What's going to happen is probably going to change you. It's going to change the people around you. And God says there's some things that we have not because we, everybody together, we ask not. So we are taught in the Bible to just go ahead and knock on the door often and loud and annoyingly. And sometimes we're like, oh, no, I don't know if I should keep talking and asking God. And the Bible says just keep on, keep on, keeping on. Well, we started a brand new series last week entitled, Who is God? And we talked about uh, does God, how do we know that God exists? So this week, if you have your notes, I want you to take your notes out. And we are going to be talking about what is the Trinity. We're having this discussion about who is God. Who is God and what is the Trinity? Now, I was dating my wife. When we first started dating, she went to Thailand for the summer. So back then you had to get these little calling cards. And you had to put in, you had to call the phone number for the calling card. Then you had to put in the code for the calling card. Then you had to put the international phone number in, and then you had to put like a pound thing, some other thing. And it was this really complicated, long process, and international calls didn't work real great. But I would, when I would call, I'd be calling from America all the way to Thailand, and I would hear a voice at the other end. Now, right away, I would know if that was my girlfriend's voice or... If it was someone else, how did I know that? Because I had a personal relationship with what is now my wife. I know her intimately. We're connected. We had spent time together. Now, what was interesting is if you said that you know my wife, and you start to describe my wife to me, and you say, my wife is... Crystal is six foot five, and she has long black hair in braids, and she has red eyes and fangs. I would start saying, you know something, you may know someone named Crystal, and that sounds like a scary Crystal, but that's not my wife, Crystal. Are you tracking me here? Now, this is what, what we're talking about is this question, who is God? And oftentimes we get this concept around theology that theology is not that important. And at Two Rivers, we have a phrase. We say, in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty. In all things, we show love. But I want you to know something. The character of God, the doctrine of God, describing who God is, is essential doctrine. It is fundamental to our faith. 
Because here's what the scripture says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, they're using the right words. They're saying the right name. But not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now the people are going to reply to this. In verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in what? Everyone together, in your name. And in what? In your name, drive out demons. And one more time, everybody get at every location, and in your name, perform many miracles. See, Somebody could be talking to me about Crystal and have an entirely different person. We have the same name. My wife is named Crystal, but her description is that of a clearly different person. And look at what happens in verse 23. Then I tell them plainly what? I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It is radically important that we know God. That we don't just have some imaginary relationship with the sky fairy. That there is a God who created the universe. We learned last week that he was pre-existent. That he is so other and so beyond. Now, this matters because Jehovah's Witnesses describe God a different way than Christians describe God. Now, I'm going to be very bold and say they are not Christians. They serve a different God. Same name. Different description. Mormons do not serve our God. Muslims do not serve our God. There are people today that would say, well, isn't every God just God? Aren't all gods the same? All roads lead, we're just all holding one different part of the elephant? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Jesus makes exclusive claims. It can't be true that all things are true if some things preclude that other things. Are you tracking me? If Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, then Jesus is the only way. And it can't be that Jesus is true and other people are true. His claim is either true or false. And so... Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, Jews. And I would suggest to you that maybe you, today, do not know God. And the Bible actually tells us to be very, very certain of this. This is essential doctrine. This isn't just, oh my goodness, we're running through the field and we can have a disagreement about who God is. There is a clear definition of who God is. And that definition is, it matters because of this. Here's here's what I believe. It's, 
It's not that believing in the Trinity makes us Christians. Rather, it's being, when we're a Christian, it's we've been infilled or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We talked about this in a previous series, that it, it enables us, because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to believe in the Trinity. Now, in one sense, it's not a requirement to affirm the doctrine of the Trinity in order to become saved. In other words, you don't have to understand the Trinity in order to become a believer or follow Jesus. However, a true Christian will not deny the doctrine of the Trinity because the Holy Spirit will bear witness of the truth. John 15, 26 says the Holy Spirit, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you've been given the down payment of the Holy Spirit upon salvation, he will lead you into all truth. And we hold up the doctrine of the Trinity as essential doctrine that if you believe differently according to the Trinity, you are not in the family of believers. So this would mean anyone who claims to be a Christian but openly and continually rejects the doctrine of the Trinity is probably not truly saved. So what I'm saying here is there's no equivocation. So now let's talk about what is this Trinity. Because here's the question. How can God be three persons, yet one God? So let's get into this. You have your notes. Now Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 is the context for which all of Judaism and in Jesus Christ and everything sprang out of this concept. And it's the Shema, it's, it's the declaration that, that all Jews would give. It's hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? The Lord is, everyone together, the Lord is one. So some people would think, well, this doctrine of the Trinity is probably a New Testament concept. In progressive revelation, was probably not existent in the Old Testament. Then maybe the, the doctrine of the Trinity sprung upon us. But if we get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we begin to see the expression of the Trinity all throughout Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New. Because it would stand to reason, if this is an essential doctrine, it would be present all through Scripture. And God would be revealing himself all the way through Scripture in the same ways. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says this, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And what? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then in Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, Let, 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 let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And we are made in the image of God. We're not, God's not talking to archangels. Who is God saying, let us? He's not saying to mankind, let us make man in our image. That would make no sense at all. There has to be, represented in this verse, the foundation of Trinity. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. The Lord said, the man has now become like one of, everyone together, one of us, knowing good and evil. 
God, at the beginning of creation, begins to reveal himself. Even though we see in Deuteronomy, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, we also see God saying us in plural. In this, later on, all through the Old Testament, you see in God's work of creation, the Spirit And then later on in the New Testament, we're going to see Jesus and all of these delighting together. In fact, we'll see later on that Jesus is present in the Old Testament. So I'm going to give you three statements that are going to summarize the Trinity. You're going to need to write these down. Number one, God is three persons. Go ahead and put that in your notes. God is three persons. What we're saying here is that there are distinct persons that are expressed as God. So Matthew 28, 19 says like this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right there in one verse, there's all three persons of the Trinity represented. We are saying there are distinct persons. That this isn't, God expressing himself modally. Modalism is heresy. So God the Father often is unquestioned. Jesus, though, now we start to question. People say, wait, hold on, is Jesus a distinct person of God? In John chapter 1, verse 1, it's very explicit. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Now, we find another description, and the word was God. We're beginning to develop, hey, we have a distinction. He's with God, and he is God. There is that of the Father that is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. There is that of the Son that is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. And then there's that of the Holy Spirit that is not the Father or the Son. First John, or John chapter 1, verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Jesus is a distinct person. He is eternally preexistent. This is absolutely foundational because if you're in another, if you're a Mormon, you, you believe that Jesus was born and then ascended to Godhood. And that's not scripture. That is not our Jesus. They have the name Jesus, but it is not the Jesus of the Word of God, the infallible, authoritative Word of God. So we see in John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus is talking to God in prayer. And what we see is the sharing of glory. There's a relationship of love. Scripture later on says that Jesus is our high priest and advocate before God the Father. And so Jesus has a function inside of the Trinity, and yet he is a distinct person. Now, where we would see more controversy is when we get to the Holy Spirit as a distinct person. That there are people in this region who want to teach that the Holy Spirit is just a power or a force of God at work in the world. And I would suggest to you to believe so, And to persist in such a belief would mean that you are outside 
of Christianity and in danger of your soul and you should repent of such a belief and turn to God and recognize God for who he is. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14 displays a coordinate relationship of the Holy Spirit as with the Father and with the Son. Distinct functional relationships with us and with God and the Son. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a he, not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can have wisdom. The Holy Spirit does have power. The Holy Spirit functions volitionally under the will of the Father. And so the coordinate expression found in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, it reads like this, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, and the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is bringing relational coordination and is equivocated on the same level. Be with you all. Now, if the Holy Spirit is just a power of God expressed or a force of God expressed, that verse wouldn't make sense, nor would verses like Acts chapter 10, verse 38. It reads like this, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Here we have God the Father, Jesus the Son, and now what we have is he anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Again, we see distinct persons in the, in the verse. But interestingly, if we believed that the Holy Spirit was not a distinct person, but an impersonal force, then what would the verse would read like this? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the power of God and power. It makes no sense. There would be no need to add the word power because we've already expressed that. What we're seeing is that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person. So number two, each person is fully God. You can write that in your notes. Each person is fully God. This foundation is so important to know our God. Who is God? This is, this is incredibly complex each person is fully God, though. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says of the Holy Spirit, Now the Lord is the Spirit. Now when we say Lord here in this verse, we're not saying that in the context of the Father. We're saying that in the context of God is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This verse makes it, absolutely express claim that the Holy Spirit is God. Most people don't argue here. Where we argue is when we say that Jesus was always fully God. John chapter 1 verse 1 through 3 expresses that Jesus is the Word. And we discover that Jesus was pre-existent. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When was Jesus? In the beginning. And in fact, this is anthropomorphic language. The, the actual Greek here, 
is archon. We get our word arch or, or sort of like master. We, we get monotheists. We get monarchy from this word. It's the, the beginning leader, the express ultimate leader. And, and so we have a deep, deep understanding. And what happens as we get into this, John chapter 1, verse 2, it says, He was with God in the beginning. Where was Jesus? With God in the beginning. Through him. It's not even, it's not even possible that Jesus could be created later on because it's through him all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made. Nothing was made that has been made. Could Jesus then ascended to Godhood? Could Jesus have leveled up later on? No. Jesus has always been and always will be. So the Jehovah's Witnesses mistranslate this as not God, but a God. And, and it's an express one. It's a, an error of the Greek interpretation. And Jehovah's Witnesses actually now acknowledge this, but still hold that interpretation. But in any reading of John, you'll find over and over Jesus is, the, the, John is declaring Jesus' divinity. In fact, John writes, he says that these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and in so believing be saved. And the penultimate moment in John's writing is when we find Thomas in John chapter 20. Thomas is saying, I'm not going to believe if I, unless I can touch the hands in the hole in his side. I want to I be very certain of this Jesus. And in John chapter 20, verse 28, the culmination of John's arguments, the penultimate exciting moment in the book, Thomas puts his hands to touch Jesus, and this is his exclamation in John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and, everyone together, my Lord and my, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. And so what, what we have to understand is Jesus isn't partially God. He is 100% man and 100% God. Now, if you're trying to do the math and you understand percentages, you know that's not possible. What we're talking about is otherworldly. And I'm going to explain that, why this matters. Psalm 46 or Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, if we go back into the Old Testament, because God's revealing himself all through time, all through Scripture, it says this in Psalm 45. David is prophesying, he declares, Your throne, who, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, now, your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. 
Who is this God for God? Who is the God that did all of this for God? How could there be hero Israel? There's one God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, we have revelation into this. It says, but about the Son, he says. In, in other words, about Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. So what this is saying is that God the Father is saying to Jesus, Jesus, hold, hold on a minute. I'm going to take care of this for you. And so, so the three persons... Distinct and fully God. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, if there was any question about the divinity of Jesus Christ, it says this, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, who? Jesus Christ. So finally, number three, there is one God. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. These are the distinct understandings of the Trinity. There are three persons, separate persons. They are fully God, each one. And there is yet one God. And so here's, here's what happens. This becomes confusing. This becomes like, how could this be? And yet, in its own right, becomes a proof that God is indeed God. Not the manufactured, in, in, ingenious creation of some people who are trying to control people. Because all through Scripture, we have the revelation of God in ways that are seemingly contradictory. And I would submit to you, if there was contradiction in the Bible... Don't give it one more iota of time. But we find that there is no contradiction in the word. And, and so the expression of the Godhead, three in one, to me is proof of the inspiration of Scripture because you would have, if it was, if it was logical in our context... Before we ever had the idea of dimensions. See, if I had my computer screen up here, my computer screen is a two-dimensional screen. And, and people, let's say there were people living in the computer screen. And I was to take my three fingers and I was to touch my three fingers to the screen, what would they see? They would see three circles appearing in the sky and they would describe me to each other, they would say, God is three circles that appears in the sky from time to time in various times and various places. That would be their description of me. There would be distinct, separate expressions of who I am in a two-dimensional representation. Now, the problem is that I'm not a two-dimensional being. I am... Really, they would be three-dimensional, and I am a four-dimensional being, length, width, height, and time all expressed together. That's the definition of how our reality functions. Now, if we go from one, these really three-dimensional orientation to four-dimensional orientation, how much different am I 
from that three-dimensional representation of three circles that appear in various places at various times to what I actually am. There's a vast difference in comprehension as we add one dimension. God exists beyond dimension. God is revealing himself to us in our dimensional limitations. And before people ever had the concept of dimensions defining our reality, we never had the idea that there could be something beyond dimensions. Yet we have this description of God that the only thing that makes sense is that God exists beyond our dimensional capacity. If God was engineered according to my imagination, God would have been defined by our language and our dimensions and the reality that we exist around. And, and we would have constructed God into something that neatly fits and is perfectly logical and has all no contradictions to us until all of a sudden now we discover there's things that are beyond our dimension. And the concept of God being expressed in our reality in, in ways that seem limited yet beyond is by definition and by his nature absolutely what makes him God. That he has to be beyond our dimension. He has to be on our neat, little, tidy, put a bow on it and let it fit in a very particular way. We never could construct a God of Trinitarian concept except that God revealed himself to us. That's why I want to have the team come back and we're going to close right here. Is that you and I can know this God who's beyond our fathoming. He's beyond all dimension. He's beyond all creation that he existed before existence. Well, last week I said, what is space expanding into? We can't conceptualize it. Because we can't have an idea of anything that's not informed by everything around us. We just can't even conceptualize it. Yet that's where God is. Before the beginning of time, he's at the end of time, he is outside of time, he's in all points of time equally fully. And God, in all of his vast, infinite, immeasurable expression, has made himself known to us in the person of Jesus. There's some clever people that try to say, well... You could never really know who God is because we only have language to express God based on our reality. Therefore, God is unknowable. And the entire pursuit is a pursuit that folds in on itself and collapses. And certainly that would be true if God was inexpressible, but God has revealed himself to every one of us. In the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, John 14, 9 says it like this. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even if I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen me 
has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is saying, if you want to know God, get to know me. I'm revealing myself to you. It's very important that we understand who God is. Because if we don't know who God is, the description of God, the, the characteristics, the nature of God, we've claimed that he is our Lord and our Savior. And yet we would say, I don't really know who it is that I'm pursuing. And Jesus is saying, come, come and know me. Come and meet me, because if you've met me, you've met the Father. And that's my invitation to you, is that you would know God. That knowing God, saying who is God, the depths of who he is would change the majesty and awe with which we worship him. But not in a way that he's unknowable. Not in a way that he's far removed from us. Not in a way that he superintends in a, in a clockwork fashion. That he wound everything up and then released it and, and left us alone. He didn't leave us alone. He sends Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And he actually dwells in us. And he'll quicken us and he'll shape us and he'll fashion us as we yield to him. I want to pray. Jesus, I thank you that you made yourself known to us. That God, we can know you. That you are beyond all fathoming. You're beyond. And yet, at the same time, you've expressed yourself in a simple, loving way. And I thank you for that, God. Somehow, we get to explore you for eternity and discover who you are. And I pray that you'd begin to reveal yourself to us even now. In Jesus' name, everyone together said, amen.